Hello, everyone. Th thank, thank you for coming. Um, fair warning, this is not the 40 singles event, if that's what you thought this was, but, or, the dance, or the dance event, but hopefully it'll still be enjoyable. I just want to thank the MJAA for the invitation to speak, and thank you all for being here. Okay, so to jump right into it. Many people read the New Testament with the assumption that Yeshua came to do away with Judaism and replace it with the new religion of Christianity. And this is understandable because this perspective has been uh, very influential for many, for many centuries within German Protestantism. An early example of this comes from Martin Luther, who made the following comments in his 1526 lecture on the book of Jonah. So this is what he says. The worm Christ destroys Judaism. God appoints a worm to smite the plant. This signifies that Christ appeared with his gospel at a time when the Jews vaunted most vaingloriously that they alone were God's people. He attacked the wild plant, that is, he preached against it and abolished the law through his Holy Spirit and liberated us from the law and its power. Therefore, Judaism withered and decayed in all the world. Yeah, is, this is really strong words and kind of looking at what the story of Jonah is, seeing really supersessionism in that and also Yeshua cursing the fig tree. Um, and this kind of idea has really been pushed within German Protestantism, but within the study of uh, Second Temple Judaism and scholars reevaluating the reading of the New Testament after the Holocaust, um, there's been a dramatic shift, at least within scholarship, to understanding how Yeshua fits within Judaism. So just to kind of give an example of how this shift has taken place or kind of give a summary of where uh, historical Jesus scholars are looking at Yeshua today, uh, Dr. Helen Bond, she teaches at University of Edinburgh in Scotland, and in her book, The Historical Jesus, A Guide for the Perplexed, she says, perhaps the most important development in modern Jesus studies is the fact that the Jewishness of Jesus is now central. Second Temple Judaism is now seen to have been extremely complex and diverse. No longer can scholars imagine a normative, monolithic Judaism of works righteousness against which Jesus stood out. The question now is not so much, was Jesus a Jew? The affirmative is assumed, but what kind of Jew was Jesus? Where do we locate him within Second Temple Judaism? So these are the kinds of questions scholars in Jesus research are asking. It's, it's not so much seeing Yeshua as opposing and against Judaism, here to replace it with a brand new religion. Um, after, the, after the 1980s, that really was taken away. And outside of scholarship, we see many Messianic congregations and communities understand Yeshua within Judaism, and a lot of Christians are also on this trajectory and share this belief. But the idea that Yeshua came to replace Judaism is still popular today. So the last Messiah conference that we came here in person was in 2019, and the year before that, uh, in 2018, Pastor Andy Stanley came out with his book called Irresistible, Reclaiming the New That Jesus Unleashed for the World. And here... Uh, the reason I'm bringing him up is because he's a, very, he's a megachurch pastor who really kind of uh, encapsulates and articulates this idea that Yeshua came to uh, replace Judaism with a new religion. It was Yeshua's primary purpose in his coming. So kind of to a quote from the book, at, towards the beginning of the book, that kind of summarizes um, his, one of his theses, is that Jesus was new wine, Judaism and paganism were old wineskins. The new Jesus offered a departure from the traditions of both. He goes on to say, Jesus was born under God's covenant with Israel with the purpose, with the purpose of bringing that covenant to its sovereignly ordained end. 
Jesus fulfilled as an ended the necessity of the Jewish law. In fulfilling it, he made it obsolete. So here, what Pastor Stanley's saying, it's, it's not new. The, a lot of the ideas in his book are not new, but they are popular, and he's articulating them with clarity in the book. So like, if you want to see a book that um, just really lays out replacement theology, that's, that's a good book to just look at. But before going on, I just want to make some comments here that after reading his book, what I appreciate is that he's addressing an issue that many Christians are confused about, and that is how they relate to Torah. I think he's right that Christians are not responsible to observe Shabbat, maintain a kosher diet, celebrate Jewish festivals, and so on. Gentile followers of Yeshua are not expected to keep these commandments because they're not Jews. But more on this later as it relates to Messianic Gentiles. But one of the primary problems with Pastor Stanley's book and the statements I just quoted is that holding the position that Christians are not responsible to keep the whole Torah does not also require you to to hold the position that Yeshua came to do away with Judaism, to replace it with a new religion, to make the Torah obsolete. That's not necessary. By arguing these points, Stanley possibly unknowingly erases Messianic Judaism because Messianic Judaism is a Yeshua-centered Judaism. As a Judaism, the Torah maintains a fundamental role in our lives as a Messianic community. So I know there is, there's different views on this, but this is where I stand within Messianic Judaism on, just what, on a couple of key points that we have. And that is that Jewish followers of Yeshua should keep the commandments given to Israel because of our covenantal responsibility as Jews. And secondly, God personally leads some Gentile followers of Yeshua to participate in the Messianic Jewish community, celebrating Shabbat, Jewish holidays, etc., without expecting Christians to do the things as well, like without expecting the whole Gentile world to also join in the Messianic community. So Christianity is wonderful. It really is. But it doesn't replace Judaism. And I want to be clear here, just going into this, my goal here in this presentation is not to bash Andy Stanley. That's not what I'm doing. He's our brother and Messiah, and it would be foolish and wrong to attack him personally. We should attack arguments, not the people making those arguments. Just want to be clear on that. So my goal in this presentation is to help us effectively respond to replacement theology so that we will be better prepared to engage in conversations with our Christian and Jewish friends to explain why Yeshua did not come to replace Judaism, really to make a defense for Messianic Judaism. Okay, so kind of to lay out the outline of the presentation, what you're getting into, is we're going to look at a couple questions. What is Judaism? What does replacement theology mean for the Jewish people? Did Yeshua teach that the Torah is obsolete in Matthew 5, 17? That's what Pastor Stanley is arguing, a proof text to say Yeshua made the Torah obsolete. Uh, did the destruction of the temple signal the end of Judaism in God's covenant with Israel? Another point we're going to address from the book. And why did Yeshua have to die? So, you know, that's a lot of ground to cover, but uh, let's get into it. Okay, we'll start with this foundational question. What is Judaism? Or more specifically, what did Judaism mean during the time of Yeshua? How were Jews using this term? Okay, so the first time this, this word is used, and it's a, the Greek word, Eudaismos, uh, which is found in 2 Maccabees chapter 2. Now, this is a, a text written between 143 and 142 BCE. And it's really talking about the, the context of Hanukkah. If you're going to celebrate Hanukkah, uh, 2 Maccabees would be a great book to read. Because during the second century uh, BCE, the Seleucid king, Antiochus IV, what he did was he was trying to rid his empire of Judaism. He ruled that if anyone engages in, engages in Torah observance, they would be put to death. 
He defiled the Jerusalem temple among other atrocities against the Jewish people. And in chapter 2, verse 21 through 22, the author says, Judah Maccabee and his brothers fought bravely for Judaism. They regained possession of the temple, famous throughout the world, and liberated the city and reestablished the laws that were about to be abolished. So Judah Maccabee and his brothers fought to bring back freedom for Jews to practice Judaism, this Jewish way of life, or this Jewish ways of life, really. And we see this also in the texts that are there in 2 Maccabees 8.1 and 2 Maccabees 14.38. So looking at what, what's this relationship between practice and the religion of Judaism during the first century? Well, Jewish scholar Dr. Shea J.D. Cohen, he writes in his book From Maccabees to the Mishnah, he says, the ancient word Judaism designates the sum of all those practices and manners that make Jews distinctive, if not downright peculiar. So Judaism is not only a belief system, it encompasses the practices of the Jewish people that make them distinctive as Israel. Right? So some of the practices that Cohen discusses in the book are worshiping the God of Israel in the Jerusalem temple through sacrifice, offering prayers to God in the temple, homes and synagogues, studying Torah and other Jewish scriptural texts, circumcising Jewish infant boys on the eighth day, refraining from work on Shabbat, maintaining a kosher diet. These are all practices that made Jews distinct as Israel during the first century. Some of these things, of course, we see today. So with this context, we can understand Judaism as the ways of the Jews. And I'm intentional to put that in the plural, ways. There, there's many ways that Jews practice Judaism, right? So Judaism, it wasn't, as I, I quoted from Helen Bond, Judaism was not monolithic. It's really not monolithic today. Um, but what scholars call Second Temple Judaism, it describes the variety of Jewish groups that existed between the rebuilding of the Jerusalem Temple in 516 BCE to its destruction in 70 CE. So just kind of give some context. These Jewish groups, they had disagreements on the afterlife, resurrection, Sabbath observance, purity laws, the coming of the Messiah in the Qumran community. There was two Messiahs. The traditions of the fathers, among many other areas of Jewish beliefs and practices. So while there were many Jewish groups during the Second Temple period, it's, it's really interesting because most Jews were not a participant or a member of any one of these groups. So this diversity within Judaism, what it challenges is the narrative that Yeshua came to replace Judaism for, for two reasons that I'll list here. One is because Yeshua's disagreements with other Jews like Sadducees and Pharisees that you read in the New Testament, this is, these are not examples of Yeshua opposing Judaism. He wasn't like against Judaism there. He was having a debate within Judaism, right? And secondly, Christianity defined as a religion that is distinct, separate from Judaism, and really against Judaism, you could say that uh, what you read something like in Ignatius in the second century, um, that did not exist in the time of Yeshua. So while there was clearly diversity within Judaism during the time of Yeshua, there was a foundational belief that being Jewish came with the expectation of being Torah observant, meaning to live a Jewish life, obeying the commandments that make Israel distinct because of Israel's covenant and calling. And one way of understanding this is looking at how uh, ancient Jewish literature uses the word circumcision. So, uh, yeah, so that's my circumcision. I just thought I needed a mental break. That's not for me, but for you guys. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm just glad I don't remember it. Very painful. Um, it was also on my sister's birthday, so it was kind of a weird party. Uh, we, had, we, had, we, had, we had two cakes. Hannah was confused. 
Um, but yeah. <laughs> all right. All right, so let's, let's go over it from that. I just need to stop. Okay. Um, all right. So we'll look at um, 1 Maccabees. So looking at a, a Jewish text, 1 Maccabees, what does it have to say about circumcision? Well, this was a, a text that was probably written in the first century BCE, and it records how certain Jews responded to Antiochus's ruling of Judaism. So when we just talked about this context, but we also see this um, in 1 Maccabees. So let's read the text. It says, In those days, certain renegades came out from Israel and misled many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us, for since we have separated from them, many disasters have come upon us. This proposal pleased them, and some of the people eagerly went to the king, who authorized them to observe the ordinances of the Gentiles. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem, according to Gentile custom, and removed the marks of circumcision, and abandoned the Holy Covenant. So look at that. I put it in blue there so we could see it. They, there's this connection between removing the marks of circumcision and abandoning the Holy Covenant. Because for Jews, circumcision was the sign of the covenant with God. To remove circumcision necessarily to give up Judaism, to give up their Jewish way of life. Now, um, we don't need to go into the, surg the surgical procedure. We just had lunch, so I'll just uh, not let you look at that. But uh, we'll go to the next text. Um, in Acts 21, so another, another Jewish text, right? In Acts 21, we also find this understanding of circumcision in Second Temple Judaism. So in this text, James, or Jacob, Yaakov, the leader of the Jerusalem community, and all the elders tell Paul that Jewish followers of Yeshua in Judea who are zealous for the Torah, they're told this rumor that Paul teaches all the Jews living among the nations not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs, to quote it. Okay, so when, when Lou quotes Paul here, he uses two Greek continuation conjunctions which is may, meaning not, may day, meaning nor. So this continuation, it's connecting circumcision with observing the Jewish law. And in doing so, what he does is he captures the view of circumcision in, in Second Temple Judaism. Namely, circumcision is not just the fulfillment of a single commandment. It is synonymous with living as a Jew. It carries the expectation to keep the commandments that make Israel distinct. I first heard this view at Messiah Conference here in 2016 when Rabbi Dr. David Rudolph was teaching the yeshiva. And he also makes this point uh, in his book, um, A Jew to the Jews, on, on his published dissertation. He says, circumcision is pars pro toto language for the Jewish life as it relates to law, covenant, and customs. The Second Temple Jewish understanding is that ritual circumcision initiates one into the covenant. Covenant responsibilities detailed in the law are binding on the circumcised one. As James Dunn puts it, the Jewish way of life was a complete package. So here's some key points to have this context for as we move forward in understanding and uh, really responding to Pastor Stanley's book. It's this, Judaism is not a single belief system. It is the ways of life, plural, the ways of life of the Jewish people that make them distinctive. It is beliefs, but it also encompasses the practices of the Jewish people. And circumcision is not just the fulfillment of a single commandment. It's, it's used in different ways, but, it's, but in the way we see it in the New Testament and other Second Temple Jewish literature, it is synonymous with being or living as a Jew. So if one is circumcised, meaning if one is Jewish, they are in the covenant and are thus expected to live a Torah-observant life. So these are the key points that I wanted just to cover before we go into it. Because with this context, we can better understand the consequences if Pastor Stanley is correct that Yeshua came to make the Torah obsolete, to end Judaism and replace it with Christianity. 
think about it. Being Jewish is not only ancestry. It's not only ethnicity. Being Jewish is Jewish people living a Jewish way of life, obeying the commandments. That is Judaism. Thus, if Judaism is a race, the Jewish people are erased. That's the problem. So how do we like categorize um, what Pastor Stanley is proposing? And I read this great article by Dr. David Rudolph published recently where he makes a distinction about two forms of replacement theology, what he calls hard supersessionism and soft supersessionism. So just kind of like to give you the differences here, hard supersessionism would teach that God cursed the Jewish people because they rejected Yeshua. And as a result, God revoked his covenant with Israel, terminated Israel's boundary markers that made Israel distinct, like circumcision, Shabbat, kosher, destroyed the temple, sending Israel into exile. So that's hard supersessionism. And soft supersessionism is God's divine plan. It was God's intended purpose for Jewish law to come to an end, for the Torah to be made obsolete, and thus the church replaces Israel. So I think Pastor Stanley's form of replacement theology, his form of supersessionism, uh, lines mostly with soft supersessionism. But again, if the Torah is obsolete, if Judaism is erased, the Jewish people are erased. So if Stanley is right that Yeshua came to end Judaism, then Messianic Judaism should have never begun. But that's where I want to challenge, right? I want to, I want to go into texts that, two particular texts that Pastor Stanley uses, and one historical event that Pastor Stanley uses to make the case that Yeshua came to end Judaism, to replace with Christianity, to make the Torah obsolete. And the first one might surprise you. Like, you're looking at Matthew 5.17, you might think that I'm using that to respond. No, this is the verse he uses to make his point. So this is his reading of Matthew 5.17. He says, Jesus did not come to abolish as in destroy the validity of or undermine the credibility of the law. Jesus came to bring it to a designated end. In fulfilling the law, the Torah, he made it obsolete. So instead of just kind of summarizing his view and then responding to it, um, his section on Matthew 5.17 is pretty short. So I'm just going to read you the major passages, how he builds his argument. Okay, so I'll just do that right now. So this is quoting Pastor Stanley. He says, The Greek term translated fulfill is used by both Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.17, as well as Luke in his recitation of Jesus' synagogue message from Luke 4. In both instances, the term means to bring to a designated end. Jesus did not come to abolish as in destroy the validity of or undermine the credibility of the law. Jesus came to bring it to a designated end. If the law were a homework assignment, he was completing it. If the law were a speech, he was concluding it. If the law were a plane, he was landing it. This was Jesus' way of saying, God's conditional, temporary covenant with Israel was coming to an end, the intended from the beginning end. When God established his covenant with Israel, he set a timer. According to Jesus, the time had run out. Jesus fulfilled as an end of the necessity of the Jewish law. Just as you don't abolish a home by completing its construction, Jesus did not abolish the law when he fulfilled it, but in fulfilling it, he made it obsolete. Okay, so if you're following there, that's good, but I also just kind of want to clarify and summarize his points with, with, with three bullet points, right? So he, he makes the point that the Greek term translated fulfill in Matthew 5.17, the Greek word plerao, means to bring to a designated end. And he says this is a reference to the Jewish law, the Torah, and God's covenant with Israel. So from this point, it's thus Yeshua is saying that obedience to the Torah is no longer necessary because God's covenant with Israel is over. So no more Torah observance. 
Therefore, Matthew 5.17 teaches that Yeshua came to end God's covenant with Israel to make the Torah obsolete. So first, I want to say where Pastor Stanley is right. When God made a covenant with, the, with Israel, he called Israel to be obedient to his commandments. It is the Jewish people's covenantal responsibility to keep those commandments. So if God ended his covenant with Israel, if God divorced her, then God would no longer expect Jews to keep the commandments. The Torah would be obsolete. So Stanley is right about the theological implications of God ending his covenant with Israel, but I'm convinced that Matthew 5.17 actually teaches the opposite of what Stanley is proposing. So to show you why, let's start out by looking at this Greek word plerao, that the first point that Pastor Stanley makes. So in Matthew 5.17, it's the form of plerosai, but plerao. And when Stanley argues uh, for the meaning of this, he uses bidag, uh, which a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. So this is, this is standard in seminary and scholarship today. It's, it's an excellent resource. That's what I used in grad school. But Stanley's argument doesn't work because the specific meaning of plerao, the meaning that's translated fulfill, the word that he cites from this book actually contradicts his thesis. So BDAG has six definitions and multiple sub-definitions of the possible meanings of plerao. But, and Matthew 5.17 is listed under definition number four, which is to bring to a designed end, fulfill. But notice what it says. It, that's BDAG. That's a screenshot from, from the source that he's citing from. It says designated end from Stanley, but it really says designed end in the source, which is, which is interesting. It's a point. Um, but if you keep on reading down, the specific definition that BDAG has for Matthew 5.17, the source, again, that Pastor Stanley is citing to support his point that the Torah is made obsolete, God's ending his covenant with Israel. If you keep on reading down in this Greek lexicon, the definition provided here is depending on how one prefers to interpret the context, plerao is understood here either as fulfill, as in do, carry out, or bring to full expression, show it forth in its true meaning, to fill up, complete. So in none of these definitions does it mean to make the Torah obsolete. That's, that's not what it means. When you read Matthew 5.17 with the various meanings that BDAG provides here, you're, there's no indication that this was Yeshua's way of saying that God was ending his covenant with Israel. So in order to understand the meaning of plerao, in order to understand the meaning, in Matthew 5.17 particularly, we need to read this text in its Jewish context. And I think it's valuable to examine the Hebrew equivalent of plerao. So we'll do that now. So the Hebrew equivalent of plerao is kum, and it's used in a number of cases to mean establish or confirm. One of those places is in Deuteronomy 27.26, and I'm going to provide a, a few translations here, the TLV, the JPS, the ESB, and the NASB. So the TLV has it as, Cursed is the one who does not uphold the words of this Torah by doing them. Or the JPS, Cursed be whoever will not uphold the terms of this teaching and observe them. Or the ESV, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And then the NASB translates this Hebrew word as fulfill. So in context, Deuteronomy 27:26 comes after Moses informs Israel that God commands Israel to obey the Torah to, quote, carefully observe the commandments with all your heart and with all your soul, end quote. That's from Deuteronomy 26, 16. And then it, come, it also comes after the list of curses for breaking specific commandments. So we learn from this text that God calls Israel, the Jewish people, to uphold the Torah, to confirm it. 
We also see the, the Hebrew equivalent of plerao, kum, show up in 2 Kings 23, verse 3. And here, King Josiah reads all the words of the Torah to the people of Israel in the temple, and after doing so, the text says, And the king stood on the platform and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to confirm, right there, the word confirm, the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people stood to the covenant. So here, Josiah confirms the Torah. He and the people commit themselves to follow the commandments God calls them to according to that covenant. So going back to this, again, the Hebrew equivalent of plerao is kum, meaning here to establish or confirm. We find this meaning in Deuteronomy 27, 26, and 2 Kings 23, verse 3, that speak of confirming the Torah, expressing a commitment to keep the commandments. And this meaning coheres well with the Greek term defined in Bideg, the Greek lexicon I just uh, cited, cited from and the one Pastor Stanley uses. Because the context of Matthew 5, 17 is Yeshua's concern, his expressing that his followers, his Jewish followers, uh, need to keep the commandments. After Yeshua says, do not think that I've come to abolish the Torah of the prophets, I have not come to abolish but to fulfill, he says, amen, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or seraph shall ever pass away from the Torah until all things come to pass. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them and teaches them, this one shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the context of Matthew 5.17 concerns obedience to the commandments. And similar to Yeshua, the first century Jewish philosopher Philo, he wrote, The law is immortal as long as the sun and moon and the whole universe exist. Kind of seeing a similar parallel with Philo on that. Also, earlier in Matthew... In Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, we also find the use of plerao in the form of plerosi, the same form it's found in Matthew 5, 17. And here, this is Yeshua's immersion. Yeshua says that he should be immersed by John to fulfill all righteousness. And here in this text, fulfilling carries the sense of obedience, specifically obedience to God's plan to identify with Israel, confessing her sins, and being immersed. So all this to say... Plerao in Matthew 5, 17, that word for fulfill, when we read it in its Jewish context, this isn't just me defining this as confirmed, but Dr. Craig Keener, a renowned New Testament scholar, teaches at Asbury Seminary, um, he wrote a four-volume commentary on Acts, 4,600 pages, I said that almost killed him, uh, but he made this comment um, on his commentary on Matthew. In Matthew 5, 17, he said, When Jesus says that he came not to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill, he uses terms that would have conveyed his faithfulness to the scriptures. To fulfill God's law was to confirm it by obedience and demonstrating that one's teaching accorded with it. And I agree with him. I agree with Dr. Keener that here in Matthew 5, 17, what Yeshua means here is that he came to confirm the Torah. Okay, so we just did a, a sort of an in-depth study on confirmed on Matthew 5, 17, plerao. So what's the other word that... Yeshua uses here, and Matthew is quoting in Greek. Um, well, it's the word to abolish, katalusai, or kataluo. So what, is, what does Yeshua mean here when he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets? So this word does mean abolish and destroy. And this Greek word, katalusai, it shows up twice in verse 17, as you just saw. And in this case, I want to show you how other Jewish authors around the, sort of around the time of Yeshua 
use the same Greek word that Matthew uses when he quotes Yeshua in Matthew 5.17. So what we're doing here is we're reading, we're using extra-biblical Jewish literature to help inform and illuminate how we're understanding the meaning of this Greek word that Yeshua is using, abolish. Dr. Um, Matthew Thiessen, he's a New Testament scholar at McMaster University, he did the study on this. He was, I think, the first person to make this observation. But the specific Jewish text that he points to shows how the way these authors are using katalua or katalusai should inform how we understand Matthew 5.17, abolish. Okay. And I, I think you'll understand why when you see. So let's, let's, let's look at these texts. So this is actually the same story, the same story I just talked about at the beginning of the presentation. That's Antiochus IV's attempt to rid his empire of Judaism, to abolish Judaism. So the author of Fourth Maccabees uses the same Greek word that Matthew uses in Matthew 5.17, kataluo, or here katalusai, uh, to talk about how Antiochus IV was trying to abolish the way of life of the Hebrews. It, the author says, here are buried an old priest, an old woman, and seven sons because of the violence of the tyrant who wished to abolish the way of life of the Hebrews, the Jewish people. Antiochus tortured and killed uh, seven sons for their refusal to eat pork, along with a, a priest here. They, they, were, they were martyrs because they were standing up for Judaism. And what the author here is doing, he's saying that Antiochus was trying to abolish, katalusai, the way of life of the Jewish people, Judaism. So another text that uh, Thiessen points to is Josephus, specifically Jewish Wars 1-3-4, where here it says, Antiochus carried away his, by his ungovernable passions, put pressure upon the Jews to abolish their ancestral customs, leaving their infants uncircumcised and sacrificing swine upon the altar. Again, here, it refers to Antiochus's vicious attempt to stop Jews from practicing Judaism, all Jewish ways of life. In 2 Maccabees chapter 2, this is the same text I quoted at the beginning. Here, it's, the, the word kataluo is also used, and the author says that Judah Maccabee and his brothers, they were fighting for Judaism in response to Antiochus, who was trying to abolish it. The same Greek word Matthew uses again. So these texts from, from 2 Maccabees, 4th Maccabees, and Josephus should inform how we understand the meaning of abolish in Matthew 5.17. Because they reveal how other Jews during the time of Yeshua were using this word abolish, kataluo. And given the context and that Yeshua's discussion in Matthew 5.17-19 through 19 is about keeping the commandments, it stands to reason that when Yeshua says he did not come to abolish the Torah, He's not talking about undermining the Torah's validity or credibility as Pastor Andy Stanley suggests. What Yeshua is saying here, what he's saying here, is that he did not come to stop Jews from obeying the Torah. To put it another way, he did not come to destroy the Jewish way of life. He did not come to abolish Judaism. And we see that given the meaning of abolish here, we can rule out Pastor Stanley's interpretation of play ra'o, that word for fulfill the way Stanley puts it as ending God's covenant with Israel, making the Torah obsolete. Because the Jewish context of kataluo, the word abolish, shows us that the opposite is true. Yeshua is saying that he came to confirm the Torah. And when you read through Matthew, keep on reading through Matthew, you see multiple occasions where Yeshua confirms the Torah and Jewish commandments, such as honoring your parents, Jewish prayer, fasting, almsgiving, Sabbath observance, Passover observance. He attends the synagogue. He wears tzitzits, tithing maintaining a kosher diet, the laws regulating or related to sacrifice in the temple, purity laws. Read Matthew, and you, you'll see over and over again that Yeshua confirms the Torah. So kind of to summarize the key points I just went over, 
The first one is, when Yeshua says that he did not come to abolish the Torah, Yeshua is saying that he did not come to stop Jews from obeying the Torah. He has not come to destroy the Jewish way of life, meaning Judaism. When Yeshua says that he came to uh, fulfill the Torah, play Rosai or play Ra'o, that says nothing to do with ending God's covenant with Israel, making the Torah obsolete. Yeshua is saying that he came to confirm the Torah. And if Yeshua came to make the Torah obsolete, he would be abolishing Judaism, which he said he did not come to do, right? That's right in the, in the same passage. Okay, so with this, I just want to make a, a, side, a, a little side comment here. Just two slides. Bear with me. But this is a quick response to a common Hebrew roots misinterpretation of Matthew 5.17. And this interpretation actually opposes both Andy Stanley's reading and Messianic Jewish theology. Um, I was talking to a a counter-Hebrew roots expert this week, and he was telling me that uh, this is actually a key text that uh, Hebrew roots teachers use as to cite their, their reading that all Gentiles are obligated to keep Torah. So this is, this is the idea that just because the Yeshua is pro-Torah in this instance doesn't mean that now all Gentiles have to keep Torah, and this is why. The Torah requires Jews to keep the commandments because of their covenantal responsibility as Jews, as a response to God's grace. The Torah does not require Gentiles to keep the Jewish-specific commandments, circumcision, Shabbat, the feasts. Thus, Yeshua confirming, fulfilling the Torah, this does not mean that Yeshua changed the Torah's expectations such that all the commandments now also apply to Gentile followers of Yeshua. What Matthew 5.17 does mean is that Yeshua continues to expect Jews to live as Jews, faithfully keeping the commandments. So another point here I want to say is that Gentile followers of Yeshua are not obligated to keep the Jewish specific commandments is confirmed by the Apostles' decision in Acts 15 and Paul's rule for all the congregations in in 1 Corinthians 7, 17-20. I encourage you all to read those texts um, later, later this week or when you get home. Finally here, God personally leads some Gentile followers of Yeshua, individual Gentiles of Yeshua, to participate in the Messianic Jewish community, celebrating Shabbat, Jewish holidays, etc. And a a really good text to see the scriptural warrant for uh, Messianic Gentiles is in Colossians 2, verse 16 through 17. Um, And this, adding the point here that there's no expectation for all Gentiles, all non-Jewish followers of Yeshua, to also keep all these... uh, these, pra- these Torah practices. So going on. So within the discussion of Matthew 5.17 in Pastor Stanley's book, he, he continues within that same chapter to discuss a historical event that he sees as the way of Yeshua uh, predicting the end of Judaism and God's covenant with Israel. So he says here, he says, the destruction of the temple signaled the end of ancient Judaism, meaning here he's using in the word of old Judaism that's been replaced. The destruction of the temple signaled the end of ancient Judaism. While the words of the covenant were preserved, Israel's ability to live in accordance with those words vanished in a day. Judaism, as prescribed by Moses at Mount Sinai, ceased to exist. To use Jesus' term, it disappeared, as Jesus predicted. God's covenant with Israel was no longer necessary. He goes on to say, New Testament scholars have long debated the significance of Jesus' famous last words, from the cross, it is finished. As his disheartened followers would soon discover, Jesus wasn't finished, but something was. Perhaps in his final moments, he was announcing to those gathered that the covenant he came to fulfill, as in, as Stanley put it, end, was at last ended, it was last fulfilled. 
So these are strong statements, and Stanley views the destruction of the temple as the sign that Yeshua successfully ended Judaism. Okay, so here's, here's I want to respond here. So first, I think it's important to note that Yeshua did predict the destruction of the temple. We see this in Matthew 24, in Mark 13, and Luke 21, the same text that Pastor Stanley cites. But those texts are not speaking of the destruction of Judaism and God's covenant with Israel. Those are assertions Stanley makes without argument. Stanley, what he does there is then offers an interpretation of Yeshua's last words on the cross from John 19.30, it is finished, to mean that God has finally ended his covenant with Israel. We need to be able to address this kind of argumentation. And so for the rest of the time we have, I'm going to ask and answer the question, did the destruction of the temple signal the end of Judaism and God's covenant with Israel? So to do this, what we need need to do is we need to look at Matthew 23, verse 29 through 24, verse 2, specifically this text, because this is where we see Yeshua predicting the destruction of the temple. All right, so let's get into it. So in this text, Yeshua speaks as Israel's prophets would against Jewish leaders for their hypocrisy. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors. You snakes, he goes on to say, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How can you escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets, sages, and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. So Yeshua weighs into these guys. He's, he's very furious with their hypocrisy. He's furious because certain scribes and Pharisees, they decorate the tombs of the prophets, but they are the ones who will kill the prophets. He calls them snakes and brood of vipers because these are creatures, where I see it, they are creatures that are unclean. And by doing so, he's emphasizing their impurity. And Yeshua follows this up by charging them with bloodshed, which is one of the worst sources of defilement in Jewish tradition. Yeshua himself, he, def- he says that murder defiles in Matthew 15, verse 18 through 20. And in Numbers 35, verse 34 through 35, we read that bloodshed defiles the land. The text says, You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and the land can have no expiation for blood that is, is shed on it except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you lived, in which I myself abide, for I, Hashem, abide among the Israelite people. So again, Yeshua is so furious because scribes, certain, certain scribes and Pharisees defiled the temple through bloodshed. And this is so serious that Yeshua says, all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of, blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Bechariah, whom you murder between the sanctuary and the altar. So Yeshua here informs these these particular scribes and Pharisees that they are guilty of the murder of Zechariah. And according to Jewish tradition, Zechariah's murder in the temple led to the execution and, and massacre of thousands of priests. We read this in the Jerusalem Talmud. 80,000 priests were slaughtered for the blood of Zechariah. And the text specifically says that this bloodshed defiled the temple. It says here, they killed a priest, a prophet, and a judge, spilled innocent blood, defiled the temple courtyard. And it was a Sabbath day and a day of atonement. 
Okay, so going there's other there's a, there's a number of other Jewish ancient Jewish texts that discuss this, even a first century uh, Jewish text that just describe the the killing of Zechariah there, and th this is the context of Yeshua. And going back to what he's saying here, Matthew twenty three, Yeshua rebukes certain scribes and Pharisees for defiling the temple through bloodshed, and we need to keep in mind that in the Mosaic covenant, this covenant requires atonement to purify Israel from sin, so that God could dwell with His people. In Exodus 29, 44 through 46, we, we read, I will sanctify the tent of meeting and the altar, and I will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. I will abide among the Israelites, and I will be their God, and they shall know that I, the Lord, am their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might abide among them, I, the Lord, their God. Okay, so we see a problem arising here. The Mosaic covenant requires atonement, but certain scribes and Pharisees defiled the temple through bloodshed, thus eliminating the efficacy of the sacrifices and therefore the assurance of national atonement. We see that in Numbers uh, 35, 33-34, and the rabbis comment on, in Babylonian Talmud Yoma 85a, that God's presence cannot dwell in defiled space. So in the Babylonian Talmud, Yoma 85a, it says, It is known that bloodshed renders the land impure, since it is stated about a murderer, and you shall not defile the land. And it causes the divine presence to depart from the Jewish people, as the verse continues, In the midst of which I dwell, for I the Lord dwell in the midst of the children of Israel. All quoting from Numbers 35, verse 34. So here, Yeshua informs these particular Pharisees and scribes, that because they defiled the temple through bloodshed, God's presence has left the temple. Yeshua says in Matthew 23, verse 38, he says, See, your house is left to you desolate. It's empty. God's presence has left. And then if you keep on reading down, you see that Yeshua moves and he goes to the Mount of Olives. And a good question to ask is why does Yeshua leave the temple and go to the Mount of Olives within this context of Yeshua saying, you defiled the temple and now God's presence has left? Why does Yeshua do that? Well, there's, a, there's an argument or a, a understanding of this that I find convincing by Dr. Anders Runison from the University of Oslo. He argues that Yeshua travels from the temple to the Mount of Olives as a way to signal that God's presence left the temple due to its defilement. And this is because in Ezekiel 11 teaches that the Mount of Olives is the location where God's presence moved to before the first temple was destroyed. You read that in Ezekiel 11, verse 5 through 6, verse 8 through 10, and in verse 23. And the glory of the Lord ascended from the middle of the city and stopped on the mountain east of the city. So Yeshua cites bloodshed caused by certain scribes and Pharisees as the reason for the temple's defilement and God's departure and the temple's future destruction. I mean, similar to Yeshua, the first century Jewish historian Josephus indicates that certain Jews defiled the temple through bloodshed. And in Jewish Wars 5, 412, he writes, I cannot but suppose that God is fled out of his sanctuary and stands on the side of those against whom you fight. So very, very similar, we see that Josephus view that God left the temple before its destruction. And of course, Yeshua was talking much earlier uh, than Josephus. Okay, so to kind of recap and, and, and discuss the problem here. So, one, the Mosaic Covenant requires atonement. Two, certain scribes and Pharisees defile the temple through bloodshed, thus eliminating the efficacy of the sacrifices and therefore the assurance of national atonement. And three, God leaves the temple, which is the precursor for its destruction. 
Okay, so what is Yeshua's solution? Well, how does Yeshua deal with this? Well, we get an answer in Matthew 20, verse 28, when Yeshua says, the Son of Man, as Yeshua referring to himself as the Son of Man, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Going on, Yeshua further clarifies how he will do this during his Passover meal in Matthew 26. So in Matthew 26, verse 26 to 28, we read, Now as they were eating, Yeshua took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So, the way in which Yeshua will provide atonement for the forgiveness of sins, even while the temple is defiled, is that he says he will offer himself in place of the atoning sacrifices. And if you'd like to read more about this reading of Matthew 23 through 24, I highly recommend Dr. Anders Runison's article, Saving the Lost Sheep of the House of Israel, Purity, Forgiveness, and, and Synagogues in the Gospel of Matthew. And then he has, another, he has a book on this, or at least a section on this, uh, Divine Wrath and Salvation in Matthew the narrative world of the first gospel. And also, uh, I, want, I want you guys to keep in mind that the concept that the, that the death of a righteous martyr providing atonement, it's not foreign to Judaism. This solution is not a foreign concept. Because around 200 years before Yeshua, Antiochus, he defiled the temple, right? They're talking about this defilement, Matthew 23. Antiochus defiled the temple, sacrificing swine on the altar. And the Jewish people, they had no access to atonement in the temple. It was defiled. There was, there was swine on the altar. They, they couldn't make sacrifices. Judaism was forbidden. So in Antiochus' attempt to rid his empire of Judaism, he forced the Jewish people under torture and death to eat pork. That was, that was a sign that you have uh, done away with Judaism, that you've given up the Jewish way of life. And the Maccabean literature discusses uh, Jewish people who refused to eat pork. They were tortured and executed because they were standing up for Judaism that Antiochus was trying to abolish. And one of those individuals was a Jewish priest named Eleazar. His, his torturers burned him severely and threw, quote, stinking liquid into his nostrils. Eleazar's final words are recorded in 4th Maccabees 6, verse 27 to 28. He says this you, right before he's about to be just executed. He says, you know, O God, that though I could have saved myself, I am dying in these fiery torments for the sake of the law, for the sake of the Torah. Be merciful to your people and let our punishment be a satisfaction on their behalf. Make my blood their purification and take my life, take my life as a ransom for theirs. So the Greek word here for ransom is it literally means a life exchange. His words harken back to Leviticus 17.11 where one life atones for the life of another. And there is no temple to perform sacrifices, including the sacrifices of Yom Kippur, so it makes sense why Eleazar would offer himself as a replacement for the sacrifices. He's saying, let my life be an atonement because we don't have access to a temple. Let my death, my martyrdom serve as a ransom for the people of Israel. And similar in 4th Maccabees 17, verse 20 through 22, in reference to Eleazar, among other Jewish martyrs who were tortured and executed for refusing to eat pork, the author writes, these then who have been consecrated for the sake of God are honored not only with this honor, but also by the fact that because of them, our enemies did not rule over our nation. The tyrant was punished and the homeland purified. They have become, as it were, a ransom for the sin of our nation. And through the blood of those devout ones and their death as an atoning sacrifice, 
divine providence preserved Israel that previously had been mistreated. So here, I wanted you to look at two texts here. So we just read 4th Maccabees 17, verse 22, but look at Romans 3.25. This word for atonement, hilasterion, is the same Greek word. And here, in it, what it means here, in the same Greek word used in Romans 3.25, God set forth Yeshua as an atonement, hilasterion, through faith in his blood. So here we see that the Jewish concept that the death of a righteous martyr can provide atonement. The late Jewish scholar, Dr. Geza Vermesh of Oxford University, he says in the passage quoted from 4th Maccabees, chapter 6 and chapter 17, the self-offering of the martyrs is considered as an atonement for the sins of Israel, and the life of the just is offered as a ransom for sinners. By offering his life in expiation, the martyr imitates Isaac. Okay, so looking at these similarities on the atoning power of the death of the righteous, there's just really incredible similarities between Yeshua and Eleazar. Yeshua, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he goes on in the Passover, he says, my blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then Eleazar, he says, make my blood their purification and take my life as a ransom for theirs. These are some of the last words that these Jewish men said before their death, asking for their death to be an atonement. The reason we're confident that Yeshua's death did in fact make atonement is because God validated Yeshua and his message by raising him from the dead. Okay, so going back to the, this, this context, this looking at Matthew 23 and 24 in its Jewish context, we see the Mosaic Covenant requires atonement. Certain scribes and Pharisees defile the temple through bloodshed, thus eliminating the efficacy of the sacrifices and therefore the assurance of national atonement. Three, God leaves the temple, which is the precursor for its destruction. And Yeshua's solution, Yeshua's solution here is to offer himself as the atoning sacrifice because the temple is defiled. It's going to be destroyed. Yeshua is the atoning sacrifice. So to understand further the significance of Yeshua's death, we need to go back, I think we need to go back to the beginning of Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 1, verse 21 through 23, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him, Miriam will give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by Adonai through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Yeshua, of course we know, Yeshua's name means salvation. And as the Jewish Messiah, he will save his people from their sins. And Matthew applies Isaiah 7.14 to Yeshua to make the point that Yeshua is the Savior. Yeshua is God with us. And remember, God gave Israel the Mosaic Covenant. And within that covenant, God requires atonement to purify Israel from sin so that God could dwell with his people. In Matthew 23... Yeshua aggressively informed certain scribes and Pharisees that they defiled the temple, and this is the location where God dwelled with his people. It is now desolate. We read that in Matthew 23 and in 24. God left the temple, and as a result, it will be destroyed, and it was destroyed in 70. So this is the problem Yeshua came to solve. One of the problems he came to solve is that he came to save his people so that God would be with us. And keeping that in mind, we read in Matthew 5, verse 17, Yeshua further clarifying the purpose of his coming when he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Yeshua did not come to abolish the Torah. He did not come to end Judaism. He came to confirm the Torah. 
The primary way in which Yeshua confirmed the Torah is through his atoning death. As we read in Matthew 20, verse 28, Yeshua says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. During his Passover meal in Matthew 26, Yeshua uses wine at the table to symbolize the meaning of his impending death when he says, My blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what's this data? Let's look at the data we have now that we've accumulated. Okay, Yeshua, as the Jewish Messiah, came to save his people from their sins for God to be with us in Matthew chapter 1. God gave Israel the Mosaic Covenant, and within that covenant, God requires atonement to purify Israel from sin so that God could dwell with his people. Yeshua came to confirm the Torah. When he says, I've come to fulfill the Torah, he's saying, I've come to confirm it. Certain scribes and Pharisees, they defiled the temple through bloodshed, thus eliminating the efficacy of the sacrifices and therefore the assurance of national atonement. God, as a result, leaves the temple, which is the precursor for its destruction. And Yeshua's solution, Yeshua's solution is to offer himself as the atoning sacrifice. So this is the data we have, that we're given, and what we need to do is give an account for it. And here's what I suggest. Yeshua's death confirms the Torah. It confirms God's covenant with Israel. Thus, Israel, the Jewish people, continue to have the responsibility to keep the commandments that make Israel distinct. Judaism, the Jewish ways, plural, the Jewish ways of life are preserved. This does not mean, this does not mean that Gentile followers of Yeshua are now also obligated to keep these commandments. The reason being, they're not Jewish and do not become Jews upon joining Messiah's community. Read Acts 15 and 1 Corinthians 7. But it does mean that now everyone, Jew and Gentile, have access to the atoning power of Yeshua's death by placing their trust in him. Amen. Yeshua's death, it really counters hard supersessionism and soft supersessionism, this replacement theology. Now, I love what Anders Brunison has to say and how it really responds to hard supersessionism. He says, contrary to common Christian theology, in Matthew, the temple is not destroyed as a punishment for the death of Jesus. The logic goes in the opposite direction. Jesus has to die precisely because the temple has already been defiled and will, as a consequence, inevitably be destroyed. Yeshua preserves Judaism. He keeps the Mosaic Covenant intact and confirms the Torah by offering himself as the atoning sacrifice, thereby providing forgiveness of sins for Jews and for Gentiles. So, no, contrary to what Pastor Stanley suggests, Yeshua's death does not end Judaism and God's covenant with Israel. It preserves Judaism and keeps the covenant intact.